Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Schmidt. We're here with CJ and Elise McCollum. This is July 19, 2022. We're at Outside Vineyards. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get things rolling, and either one of you can start this answer, is why wine? Yeah. I think for us, and for me specifically, this was a space I wasn't familiar with. It was a space that I didn't grow up around. It was a space I wasn't exposed to growing up in Canton, Ohio. And, you know, the whole story is my wife inter- ends up introducing me to wine when she was my girlfriend in college at the time and it was a Merlot. It wasn't a great Merlot. It was, you know, low budget, not great, not good for our taste buds. I don't th- I think we evolved in terms of becoming wine snobs, if you will, but just be- becoming more in tune with what we like and what we don't like. That was the very beginning of it. I get drafted by the Portland Trailblazers and I began going to, to different vineyards, different wineries and having those conversations and I think I just fell into the rabbit hole of searching for knowledge and as I pursued my now wife, um, I continued to pursue wine um, and, and just wanted to learn, wanted to grow, wanted to truly understand something I wasn't exposed to and try to figure out why I wasn't and how I could bring more people to this space, more people that look like me and come from places like me. And I think as I progressed, as I got older, as I became more mature, I, be, I began to have those conversations about this space. I began to have conversations about the process of wine, how it's made, what you pair it with. And it's ironic that we have a Bryant Creek sitting here right now because that was the first wine I was exposed to in Oregon. It's a Bryant Creek um, from Walter Scott. Uh, as my wife would say, shout out to Ken and Erica. Um, it was a uh, Pinot Noir, volcanic soil, Bryant Creek, and I'll never forget it. Um, the bartender who's from Cleveland at the time, I just told him, I said, hey, you know, I want to try a, a red wine. He was like, what do you want? And I was like, I don't know. Can you just bring me something? And that's what he brought me. And it took me down the rabbit hole of searching for more and wanting more and wanting to learn more. But I think I say all this to say that wine, it brings me peace. It brings me joy. It brings me happiness. And the moments that I'm able to share with my friends and family are one of the reasons why, but also the diversity aspect of this space. And as a black man in this space, I think that um, it'll be important for people to see, you know, people that look like them in this space, people that come from places like them, and it'll make it more approachable and more comfortable. Um, for me, I think it's about um, the experiences. I think back to all the times that I would come out to visit CJ and we would have all of our dates, um, day dates going to wineries and doing tastings together. Just the experiences and memories that we created, and I think that was one of the things that we wanted to create an opportunity for other people to enjoy and to make those similar memories. Um, I think also the education stance is huge for me. My entire life has been spent in education. Up until last year when I turned 30, I was enrolled in some sort of formal education. So imagine being 30 years old and still being in class, um, taking classes. So I think that there's a huge space for me to take more classes and learn a lot more in this industry. And also, I think it's important to note that wine is the only alcoholic beverage which offers some health benefits. So (laughs) that's very important to note. What about the chemistry aspect? And the chemistry aspect is huge. Um, When I was in my 20s, I was doing my master's. And I worked in a lab running, essentially, chemistry experiments every day. So I think it's going to be interesting to learn more about the winemaking process since it's all chemistry. Chemistry you can enjoy at the end. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Happy buzz. Yes. 
So Elise, tell me about, you mentioned you're the one who introduced CJ to wine, even if it was not maybe the highest shelf wine. So did you come from any kind of wine background, family? No, no wine background, um, but my parents always enjoyed drinking wine. It was the bottle of Merlot. They said, we're never going to drink this. Here, you guys take it. And so it's kind of funny that that was what was introduced to CJ. And then he really, once he, like he said, once he got here, he had the idea and ran with it. Um, so that's how it really took off. And CJ mentioned growing up in Canton, Ohio. Uh, tell me about kind of upbringing, life, and what got you to before Oregon. What was before Oregon? Yeah, I, I grew up in Canton, Ohio. I was born in 1991, and I was raised by my mother, Kathy Andrews, and my father, Eric McCullum the first. I have one brother, Eric McCullum the second, who um, thinks it's funny that I'm in the wine space because I vowed I would never drink. <laughs> I always said growing up I would never drink because I grew up in, you know, a certain type of situation, certain type, certain type of environment in which, you know, it wasn't a, a, a great place, right? The city I grew up in, the, the neighborhood I grew up in, I was exposed to a lot early and I said I would never do certain things because I only seen the negative effects of it and how it poorly affected certain people's lives. As I grew older, as I matured, and obviously I pursued basketball, I ended up going to Lehigh University on a full ride academic scholarship and athletic scholarship. I began to learn more about the world outside of Canton, Ohio and just the experiences that I could have, um, the lifestyle that not only basketball could provide but education could provide for myself and my family. And um, I think it's still funny to this day that I'm in the wine space because I did say I would never drink and I honestly preferred spirits as opposed to wine in college, at least can attest to that. I was. Uh, a big Ciroc fan. I love vodka, tequila, and now I just can't really drink it the same. I, I, I do love a good cognac. I do love a good whiskey, old-fashioned, things of that nature, but I think my taste buds have kind of refined, and I think that we all grow as individuals based on experience and based on exposure, and I think I had one exposure and one experience growing up in the Midwest, then I went to Lehigh University, and that was a different experience and exposure, and then I got drafted by the Portland Trailblazers, and I think that shifted everything, my mindset, my mentality, and then, you know, I, I think I would have always pursued wine at some point because of my curiosity, but the partnership at Adelsheim obviously changed the trajectory of how fast things began to take off when they offered a partnership in which it would be collaborative efforts to teach me, uh, as well as my wife, about the importance of wine, the benefits of wine, live certification, the educational components of it, as well as the business side of it, and, you know, as a, as a person who believes in surrounding himself with, with people who are smarter with people who are experts in certain areas. I've always tried to do that in all aspects of my life, including my wife, who's smarter than me. So I think historically, that helped me get to where I'm at today based on knowledge, based on education, but also based on the fact that I'm a professional basketball player, right? So that is my priority, that is my focus. Wine is a hobby and passion and now a part of our business portfolio, but I need to surround people who know wine the way I know basketball. And I think I've done that and I've continued to learn and grow and seek information from those who are willing to provide it. And the Valley has been terrific in that. People have been exceptional in, in, in helping explain things. Alzheim obviously has been exceptional in explaining things, as I like to say in layman's terms, like pretend I'm a third grader, because that's literally the extent of my wine knowledge You know, when I first got here. And it's all been helpful. Gina was just here pouring us something. She's been extremely helpful. Rob, the entire team has been helpful. And now you know, we've kind of surrounded ourselves with our own team on our own independent project that we're working on currently um, out in Carleton. We'll come back to that. Don't worry about that. Elise, tell me about your uh, life kind of before college. Um, so I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was raised by my mom and dad. My mom um, was a dietitian and my dad's a dentist. So we were very, very healthy household. No junk food in the house at all. Uh, very, very high focus on education. It was always placed with very high value. 
Um, so growing up, I was always very focused on becoming a dentist. That was always my, my absolute end goal, my dream. Um, and I was very focused on that. But it, it, uh, once I got to college, it kind of allowed me to experience different hobbies and things like that. And uh, that's when we really started getting into wine, like CJ said. Um, but before then, it was, you know, you come up with one ultimate end goal, and you don't really know life outside of your, your hometown. Um, Bethlehem's a tiny town, so it was, it's fun to experience these different hobbies, and even just for CJ and I to, to do something like this together and to grow together with a business um, has been a really interesting and fun experience. But um, let's see, before, uh, before Lehigh, it was mainly education-based. Um, more so after was when I think I really started to, to grow as a person and, um, and to just start developing different hobbies. Yeah. I didn't say what my parents did for a living. Do you want, do you want that information? Feel free. <laughs> uh, my brother currently plays um, professional basketball uh, abroad. He just finished his 12th season. I'm going into 10. He's going into 13. Uh, he went to Goshen College in Indiana, uh, majored in business, minored in um, sociology, and I think he had to take a language, uh, a foreign language and a religion as well at Goshen. Um, my mother and father, my, my mom was an insurance agent for 16 years and a tax auditor for 16 years, so she worked 32 years. And my father worked in a steel mill at a very young age. Um, his father was actually um, killed when he was about seven years old, so he was raised by his mother as well and was forced to work early on and not pursue education. So I was the one that was, you know, second generation, I guess you say. My mom got her associates. Her mother died when she was young, so she never finished college. So my brother was the first in our household to finish college, and I was the second. So it was more of an emphasis on figuring out life, lifelong goals in terms of what do you want to accomplish as an athlete, but what are you going to do when you can't play anymore? So that was you know, how we were raised. My mom was big on do your homework first, treat people the right way, and understand that these gifts and skills you have are great for the now, but what is it going to do for you later? So make sure you use it and don't allow it to use you. And I think we've done that um, to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And how did you meet? Did you want me to answer that? Sure. Uh, you want to answer it? You can answer it. Uh, the short version is we had a mutual friend introduce us. Um, who, which mutual friend was it? Was it Catherine? Catherine. Catherine. Uh, shout out to Catherine. She probably will never see this. But uh, <laughs> Catherine introduced us. She was in a sorority. I was a basketball player, as you know. And we got introduced uh, to a date party. Um, it was actually one of my teammates' birthdays. Um, Holden's birthday, Holden Griner. He probably will see this because he's on Google a lot. Uh, <laughs> Holden's birthday was the same day we ended up like formally meeting at a, at a date party. I think we met in passing uh, before that, but that's the moral of the story on how we officially met, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> what, what clicked? Um, it, it was just instant. From that day, we literally talked every single day up until now. It was really, I mean, it was, I knew. I knew immediately. Um, I don't know if you did, but. I had a feeling. <laughs> well, I was, you know, I was focused on the goal. And, you know, growing up the way I did, you didn't let things distract you from what you wanted to accomplish. And, Historically, you know, man's downfall is a woman, right? Like, and it's so yeah, it's, it's, it's so funny that he thought this because it's the truth. really, I helped put you on track. Like, I remember him saying, "Oh, let's go out to eat, let's do this," and I'd say, "No, I have to go study. I have to go to the library." Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it was, "Oh, I, I have a paper to write too. I can go to the library." <laughs> no, I mean, she did. A, so I put you on track. She did. She helped. <laughs> she helped, but that's the right woman. The wrong woman will not put you on track. And for me, as a as a college athlete who was, you know, had goals and 
aspirations of playing in the NBA, my time was finite. Like I had to make sure that I was using my time wisely and coach told us very early on, you could do two out of the three. One was education, one was basketball, and one was you know a relationship. And I had basketball and I was struggling with education. So the last thing I wanted to do was add on to that like when I was told, you can't do it. So I had to figure out the, the proper balance while understanding what I wanted to accomplish professionally. And I think it was helpful that you had your own professional career, because otherwise I think that it wouldn't have worked. Like we needed to both be able to still focus on ourselves and what we want to accomplish and then bring it together. But in college, you don't think about those things. You just think that like, this is probably not going to work. <laughs> this is probably going to affect how I play. And this is probably going to affect the end goal, which was, you know, I want to be able to become a professional basketball player and put myself in position to have multiple businesses. And the wrong person would not allow that to happen. It's true. But you were the right person. <laughs> On that. So, uh, CJ, at Lehigh, I know a lot of people were introduced to you in uh, the NCAA tournament uh, game against Duke. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, uh, before that, uh, did you always think the NBA was a reachable goal? And, and at what point did it start to become kind of something that you expected to happen rather than hope would happen? Um, in third grade, I told the teacher that I would play in the NBA one day. And, um, you know, you write out your goals. What do I want to accomplish? And I was like, I'm going to the NBA. And they laughed. And the teacher was like, you need to make more realistic goals and that. You know, the do you understand the percentages? This is when we're working on math. And as someone who works with students, right, like I work with students now. And, you know, from, from grades one to three or basically zero to three, call it kindergarten, you learn how to read. After third grade, you learn how to process what you're reading. So this is the point in time where I'm starting to process like what I'm reading and process statistics. And I'm like, well, although those are the statistics, I'm like, there are still people that make it right. And she's like, yeah. So I was like, well, I'm going to be on the other side of this. And I remember, you know, because I'm a smart aleck, I remember telling her one day you're going to want me to come talk to the kids and I'm going to tell you, no, I don't have time because now I'm in the NBA and my life is too complex. Long story short, there were times where I didn't think I was going to make it, for sure, 100%. There was times where I, I thought maybe I should just focus on academics because basketball consumes so much of my life in terms of preparation, what I'm eating, what time I'm sleeping, traveling on the road. I played amateur athletic union AAU basketball since fourth grade, so I've been traveling since the fourth grade. So that was a part of my life. But that also took me away from school. It took me away from studying. It took me away from projects. I was a stranger to the library because my goal was to go to the NBA, so I had to figure out how to apply my time. I say all this to say that I grew up in Canton, Ohio, which was a small place, but it allowed me to focus on the things that I wanted to accomplish, and I was exposed to people who made it to the NBA. Like, I was around Eric Snow. I went to his kids' camp since, since I was nine years old. So I seen a professional athlete who was a black man who was 6'3", who grew up in the same neighborhoods as me, who was from the same city as me, make it to the NBA. So in my head, I thought, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. I grew up around Keith McLeod, another 6'3", black man who grew up in the same neighborhoods as me, who went to my dad's high school, you know what I mean? So I was able to see these experiences, touch them, ask them questions. I played with Costa Kufis, who's a friend to this day. Same elementary school, same middle school, same high school, goes to Ohio State, goes to the NBA. Obviously, he was a seven-footer, but I seen how he worked, and I, and I just, the, the common theme was if you do things the right way, if you work hard, and, and you, you really have undeniable belief in yourself, anything is possible, and I think I had all of those things. So I say it all this to say I ended up going to Lehigh University, and when I committed, to Lehigh University, I wasn't sure if this was the right decision or not, but I knew I would get a good education. And if for some reason I didn't make it and the world came to an end, I would have a degree and I would have the connections and relationships to, to work in the real world. My friends were telling me, why are you going to Lehigh? No one's ever been drafted from there before. People in my neighborhood were like, I don't know why he's going to this small school. I've never heard of it. 
there's no way he's going to make it. And I told him before I went, I said, I'm going to be the first player drafted from this school. And when I leave, people will remember this school. And they laughed. And some of my friends were like, we'll see. And then I played about five games. And they were calling me. And they were like, damn, you were right. <laughs> and that's kind of how it progressed through, throughout college. And now, I'm, you know, obviously, the rest is history. People do remember Lehigh. They remember it because I went there and what I was able to accomplish. But you have to have um, the ultimate self-belief in order to be successful in anything. And I think that I have irrational confidence. And that has driven me to go to a school like that, go to the NBA, get into a business that I knew nothing about. Like, <laughs> my accountants may not have liked it. They thought, like, CJ, what are you doing? Like, has Elise signed off on this? You know what I mean? But I think all in all, like, when you apply yourself to something and you really work towards something, I truly believe, like, based on my circumstances, that anything is possible. And Elise, you mentioned a, a similar kind of single-mindedness toward a goal. Uh, so tell us about how that played out for you and sort of the, the steps along the way towards where you are now. Yeah, so um, I always had the dream to become a dentist. Um, it, it required a ton of hard work. Um, after college, I pursued my master's. And then after that, as I mentioned, worked in a lab for a while. Um, but it really requires a lot of determination, a lot of ambition, um, believing in yourself too. I think with CJ, you're just incredibly like, resourceful. You're so ambitious. You've found a way to literally navigate a, an industry that you knew nothing about. Um, and I think that even just with, with dentistry, like it requires the same sort of um, ambition just to, to figure out your path and to, to succeed in different classes like that. Um, I think moving forward, uh, we're just working, I'm working part-time now, and it gives me more flexibility to hopefully get into the wine space a little bit more. CJ's, I feel like, become a master with all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> no, he has. He, he's selling himself short. He really has. Um, so I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about the industry. So CJ, before being drafted by the Blazers, did you have any impression of Oregon? No, I had never been here before. I had never heard of it. When I when I thought of Portland, I thought of Portland, Maine, <laughs> because I grew up in Ohio, right? Like, I had been to L.A. once. I had been to a couple states around there for, like, AAU. I've been to Las Vegas twice for AAU tournaments, but I had never been to Oregon. I actually worked out for the Blazers in Marquise Hall, who I went to school at, at Lehigh, uh, worked for Nike at the time and was my Nike rep. And I remember going to his house. And I thought to myself when I landed, I said, wow, this is the greenest place I've ever been to. Like, it's so green. And it was beautiful because it was summertime. It tricked me. It was beautiful. It was green. I was like, wow, this is like heaven on earth. Like, I can't believe I've never been here. Why don't people talk about this place? There's water. There's mountains. I was like, it just has everything. It's perfect. And it's like secluded and peaceful. And I was a big person on, in and believing in, I wanted to be far away from home. Like, I wanted to get away so I could experience and, and be exposed to everything, and then I could bring it back home and say, like, hey, these are things that are out there, and this is what I've seen. I've been to Europe, I've been here, like, my brother and I were both big on, like, we want to go to places outside of where we grew up at, so then we could bring those experiences home. And I think, I remember saying to myself, like, I could, I could play here and, like, live here and enjoy it, and obviously, fortune have it, I get drafted 10th uh, overall, but I had never been here before. I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I, I was the person who was willing to, to go anywhere. So like draft night, people were asking me, like, are you nervous? I'm like, no, I grew up in a city with 70,000 people, so I don't really care where I go from here. I went to a school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Like, any, anywhere is a win for me, considering my circumstances. So like, I'll just live and enjoy uh, whatever comes with that. So I, I think I've always been like that, in which I just make whatever is given to me, I just figure it out. 
and just make the best of it. So uh, I made the best of my life here, and I think we'll always have a home here, and this will always be a part of our DNA, our culture, our story. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we've laid roots and vines down and all that stuff, so uh, <laughs> it will always have to be our home. It's literal roots. Literal roots. So at least uh, tell me at the time CJ's drafted, uh, what were your what, what what was your situation what, what, and what were you thinking in terms of like is are you spending much of your life with this guy? Are you going to follow him wherever he goes? Or so my initial thought was also. Portland, is is this a team that's in Maine? Please be in Maine. And I found out later on, no, it's, it's definitely in Oregon. But there was a little ounce of hope that I thought maybe it's going to be a little bit closer. Um, but no, we actually we decided right from the beginning that we were both going to pursue our dreams and our goals. Um, I think at that time, I was just starting. I was just starting my master's. And so people said, oh, are you just going to quit? And I said, absolutely not. I signed up for this. I have to finish it. Um, and then even after that, I said, and then I'm going to go to dental school, and it's probably not going to be in Oregon. Um, and so we kind of really had to establish that support for each other and, and for us to, to achieve everything that we wanted in life, because we're both very ambitious people. And it was important to have a like mindset and um, for both of us to just to be happy. I would have never been happy if I just followed CJ out here and then just said, OK, what, you know, what am I going to do? Um, I had this very unique dream that he always supported me on which I don't think I could have ever, ever accomplished if it weren't for your support. So thank you for that. Oh, I don't think you would have accomplished it. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, definitely not. <laughs> Good mutual support. I, I like that. Yeah. So what were your impressions of Oregon? I absolutely loved it. Um, number one with Oregon is the climate zone here. Not like the East Coast, you can grow anything here. And gardening has become one of my favorite hobbies. If you can tell by my enthusiasm, um, it's something I'm going to miss so much when we do um, move soon. But it's going to be wonderful to come back to. Um, I've learned a lot about growing vegetables, growing fruits, um, growing flowers. I, I like to consider myself as an amateur floral arrangement um, designer, but just for my house. <laughs> um, yeah, I absolutely love it. I love the people here. are. Incredibly nice, way nicer than the East Coast, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, and the food here has been really unique and interesting to try. We've gotten to really experience a lot of it. Um, yeah, there's just a culture here, like I mentioned, going on day dates to wine country. It's a really unique setup um, and something that we've really never taken for granted. Yeah. Well said. Well said. <laughs> so you mentioned your kind of gateway wine, your aha wine, Walter Scott wine. So, so tell me about uh, at that point. At what point did actually getting yourself into the wine space become something you became serious about? So I tasted that wine at ringside. By the way, I used to go once a week after games for happy hour. But um, I tasted that wine and I thought to myself, "Wow, this is incredible!" Like I've been missing on this my whole life. And then I thought. My family has no idea what like good wine tastes like. Like that was like those things came to my mind. It's like I gotta tell Elise about this. Like I have to tell my family. This is a wine that like I can just buy like at a restaurant. So like imagine what's really out there. Like not just in Oregon, but like in Sonoma and Napa, Super Tuscany, Bordeaux, Burgundy, all those places. I start thinking like there's just so many things out there that I'm just unaware of and, and not exposed to that I, I want to just like figure it out and, and learn more. And then I started watching Netflix shows and then I started going to tastings and Evan Turner took me to, I think we went to Domaine Serene, then I went to Domaine Drew, and then I went to Stoller. 
Lisa and I went to Stoller, and then we began to just go to different places, and next thing you know, I'm a, I'm a member at seven places. <laughs> and wine's coming in, I'm like, this, is this how it is? Like, it just keeps coming. I'm like, all right, we gotta pause. Like, this is too much. And then I began to just ask questions, like, right? Like, I started meeting with cellar masters. I started meeting with songs. I started meeting with chefs. Hey, what should I pair this with? I've only had Pinot Noir, so I don't want anything else. And they're like, well, there's other wines out there you should try. And I'm like, nah, this is it. I found my wine. Like, I'm cool with this. And I only want Oregon Pinot. And then I got introduced to bubbles, right, for like celebratory reasons. And then I didn't know the difference between like a Blanc de Blanc and a Sparkling Rosé. And I'm like, they're both bubbly. Like, you know what I mean? Like wine 101, like I'm an amateur. It just, it bubbles in my glass. Like I know about Dom Perignon, like some of those, Ace of Spades, you know what I mean? But like, what's the difference? Like, why is this grape so much better than the other grapes? Why is this a 2011 and this a 2012? What does the climate mean? And I just began asking questions and the rest is, you know, as they say, the rest is history, but I still ask questions to this day and I still am in search of knowledge and a better understanding of the process. And as a person who, likes to project, right, and like forecast, like what will life be like in five years or 10 years. I think this, this field is so unique because we're going through this now, like Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, we have to buy grapes for 2024 in 2025, but I'm like, we're not even in 2023 yet. How am I supposed to know what I want in 2024? You know what I mean? But it's just the, the ability to predict and have to adjust is it's like life, right? It just, it throws different curveballs at you. You can't predict a drought, you can't predict snow four weeks ago like we had, like things just kind of happen. I think the unpredictability of it makes it really cool and unique, but also makes it challenging. And in my life, I've always wanted challenges. I don't know why, but I've always wanted challenges. And then when you overcome it, you just kind of go to the next thing. I think this is that type of field where I'll stay in this forever, but like it's just a, the, the search of knowledge and the, and the will and the fortitude to want to learn more. This is a space in which you'll never truly have a full grasp of. I think that's the cool part. And I've progressed to, you know, I, I wish I would have bought more uh, grapes to make white wine in 2017. But when they when they told me you should do this, I was like, Nah, I don't do that. That's not that's not what I'm about. Like my wife and I don't drink white wine, so I can't sell it. I wish I would have just bought more. But we're going through that process now of learning and having been to Italy, having been to Spain, having been to different places. We're starting to, you know, get more familiar with CDP, get more familiar with certain things that are outside of, you know, the new world, so to speak. I have just one more thing to add about the time when he got serious about wine. There's a very unique moment for me that I realized he was serious. Um, and that was back during August of 2020 when they were in the NBA bubble. So just a little background on CJ. He loves to be warm. He does not like being cold at all. Like the, I think that the only thing that we like argue about consistency consistently is the thermostat and he likes it on 80 i like it on 68 80 is 73 so so he likes being warm even when he's in florida he likes being warm you know so i'm reading an article one day and it says that cj mccollum has his thermostat on 55 to mimic the temperature of a wine cellar and i was like no way there's no way so I FaceTime him on the spot and I say, let me see your thermostat. And he shows me it and it's actually on 55. And I thought, oh my God, you are so dedicated to your wine that you're willing to forfeit your internal thermostat that, that you'll do that. And so that's when I really knew 
he was 100% serious about wine. <laughs> I was just thankful the bottle shock didn't and destroy the grapes from Oregon to Florida. <laughs> I was in a hat and a yeah. hoodie in Florida. And I'm like, oh my God, but are you sick? The, but the wine was wonderful. The, yeah, the wine was, was great. Uh, I had bubbles sent in from Stoller, from Adelsheim. I had single vineyard. I had the blends. Mello brought in white burgundy. JJ had rum. Like, we, we was Bordeaux. <laughs> 85 Chateau Margot, like th these are like these are heavy hitters. You know what I'm saying? Like this isn't this isn't just any type of grape. I have the the creme de la creme of wines in my room. Like I can't ruin this moment. Who knows how yeah. long I was gonna be stuck here in Orlando? I could I could go outside and get warm in an instance. Amazing. So one thing I think is interesting. You mentioned kind of early on is, as being being a young black man in the space was not something that you had seen much of. You yeah. mentioned a lot of other NBA players, and obviously the NBA wine culture is something that's, that's grown heavily in the last years. I'm curious uh, what have teammates and, and, and people you know in, in the league, how have they kind of come along as well, and how have they sort of yeah. asked you and learned, learned from you and t told you about kind of wine culture? It's a great fraternity. You know, we share a lot of our secrets with each other. We share a lot of stories, and we basically want to make sure that the younger generations that are coming up are are in better position than we were when we leave. And I think that's the cool part about it. But I've introduced wine to a lot of my young teammates once they turn 21. They get angry at me because I really won't let them drink. Like on the planes and stuff, I'll say, no, nah, you're only 20 and you're too young. And I remember like playing in Portland, Gary Trent Jr., Anthony, like a lot of those guys, Nas. I wouldn't gift them wine on the holidays because they were too young. I would gift the staff wine. I'd give our teammates wine and they wouldn't have a bottle in their locker. And they'd be like, what? That. I said, I can't give to a minor. I'm so sorry. But I taught them about like the process and like what I was going through and what it was like and what I would encourage them to drink once they turn 21. And then when they turn 21, I take care of them. But I think the cool part about this space is that before I got into the business, I called my wife first and I was like, what do you think about this? And she was like, well, if you like it, go ahead. Like, I don't, I don't really, you sure? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think this is a cool space, but like, you want to like put your own wine out? Like, yeah, I think it'd be cool. So she signed off and then I called D-Wade. And I was like, I know you have your own wine. Like, what do you think about this? And he was like, I think it's cool, but make sure you do this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, what about the winemaker? He's like, the winemaker is the most important. He was like, they're going to make your wine. They're not going to get a lot of the spotlight. But if they're not good, your wine's not going to be good. And people are going to judge you. No matter how good you shoot, if the wine is bad, they're not going to care. So I was like, OK, what else do I need to know? And he kind of walked me through step by step questions I should be asking. What, what type of partnership should I align myself with? How do I learn about the business of wine? How often and early do I have to buy the grapes? What's that process like? What, who do I hire as a designer? How do I find a designer? So I go through those questions. Then I take it back to Ashley, who works my agency. We begin to figure out a game plan on if you're going to really do this, you have to really understand the process and you have to be a part of the process. And historically, I've always said I won't put my name on anything I'm not fully invested in. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't just put my name on things just to do it. It's like, if I'm going to do this, I need to be a part of the tasting. Like, I need to sit down with Gina and, and the winemaking team. I need to go try other wines, right? So I'm ordering Gamay. I'm ordering Pinot Blanc. I'm going through the process, Chenny Blanc, of really learning about all different types of wine, the process. And I'm not a finished product by any means, but I apply myself towards the work. And I think that the, the cool thing is that I could ask guys questions. And then like as a guy who'd been in Oregon, when Melo came, I introduced Melo to Oregon Pinot. And he introduced me to White Burgundy. And he's a wine snob, and I hope he watches this. So like when I'm telling him about wines in Oregon, he's laughing. And then he tastes it, and he's just like, oh, OK. Like, 
this is actually really good. Like, I'm surprised. Then we start drinking Oregon Shard and kind of go through the, the gauntlet. And then I meet JJ, and then I meet Josh Hart, and I meet all these other guys who like different areas of wine, like different regions. And we just swap. I'm like, hey, I got this. I want you to try this Blante Blanc from here. And he's giving me something else. And I think that's the cool part. And then I got people that are just California. So I just have like people that just send me Sonoma wine, just send me Napa. And I think that's the cool part about our space is that we all play in different regions. So I can go play against the Sacramento Kings and I can go to a wine shop right on the corner uh, ballerine, I can go right there on the corner and get wine and then I can go to the bay and have an off day and I can go try Gamay and something else, Syrah. I tried a lot of Syrah in California because we're going to end up planting Syrah in the next three years and I wanted to really know how they make it. So I sat down with five hours with the master, um, master uh, winemaker and the master Samba to, to go through the process of how they make California Syrah, and they were, you know, wine spectator, 93, 94, 97 points. So I want to taste all their wine and then tell me how you make it, and then I can take notes and figure out how I can make something similar, not the exact same same way, but you emulate greatness, and that's what I've always done. So what did you think when he, when he called and asked that, Elise? When he asked that if he, what he should do about starting in the wine space, um, gosh, this is going back so many years. I think I was like, if you're gonna do this, make sure you contact all the right people <laughs> so that it's successful. And I knew he would. Um, and once I saw that he had a, a pretty good business plan in place, I thought, go for it. I think it's a really cool opportunity. Um, Adelstein was so awesome in, in helping teach him everything. Once he mentioned with Gina and how they were gonna kind of teach him um, you know, how to actually make a wine and go through the tastings and that he'd get to be involved in the whole process. Um, and I saw how excited he got about it. It was, it was something I was like, okay, I really need to support him on this. He absolutely loves it. And I, I mean, I love wine, so I was like, this is great. <laughs> it's great for both of us. Tell me about the design. <laughs> so the design. Let's talk about this. There's an anthurium flower on the front. Um, when CJ was coming up with the label, I remember him saying, what should I put on it? I said, you should put an anthurium flower. And he said, I'm not putting no flower on my, on my bottle, word for word. And I said, OK, but it would be really cool if you put a purple anthurium on it, because that's my favorite flower. And so let's see, which one? This one. Um, this was the first bottle that he had, but back in 2018, and he said, oh, I want you to check out the label, and showed me it, and I said, there's a purple anthurium on it, and he said, yeah, I know. So he, um, it was really nice of him, as, as an ode to me, he, he decided to put my favorite flower on the bottle, which is really cool. Yeah, and in typical Elise fashion, she says, well, why didn't you just name it after me? <laughs> just an idea. The flower wasn't enough. And she said, well, if it was for me, you could have just named it after me. And, whoa, 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 that's a lot. Just an idea, you know? You got to throw out ideas. You'll get your how own, great things happen. You'll get your own down the road. You had to make sure that the brand was going to... Sounds like, good. This be, is on camera, so I remember you this. You had to make sure the brand was going to be sustainable. You can have, like, an Elise line of whatever. whatever. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. Great compromise. Uh, you mentioned uh, the partnership with Adelsheim, obviously. Uh, how did that come about? Why Adelsheim uh, as a partner? I think it was a combination of things. Um, and I mean this humbly. Uh, we probably could have partnered with a majority of vineyards um, and wineries here in Oregon, um, just based on Trailblazer and 
pretty nice guy and <laughs> want to be in the wine space, right? Like, so we wanted to make sure that it was the right partnership, the right type of partnership um, in which they practice, you know, things the right way. Like believe in sustainability, believe in making the world a better place, but also have a certain quality um, and name recognition that you want to be a part of, right? You don't want to be just aligning yourself with, you know, people who aren't doing things the right way or have a poor history of displaying, you know, the right type of character. I think the same goes for me. Like, as an athlete, they wanted to make sure they were aligning themselves with someone who does things the right way, has a certain type of character and reputation. So it was just kind of a match made and having a good fit. Obviously, they had the relationship and partnership with the Blazers on the 50th anniversary line, but we had already been talking about potentially doing something. We just didn't know what it was going to look like. And me, as a, you know, young man in this space who was learning, I didn't know anything about anything. So I'm like, well, what, do you, what would you even want to do? And they were like, well, whatever you want. And I'm like, don't, don't give me that type of freedom, because like, I'll take full advantage, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we kind of hone in on what the process would look like, how often I would be able to come up. Obviously, harvest is during training camp, so that, that poses a lot of different problems. Like, I, I'm in two days. I can't really be up here stomping on grapes during harvest, although like, that would be a cool thing to be able to do. I don't have the time and the flexibility, but we worked out a, a good schedule. And I think the hardest part was that when we were supposed to launch the wine, COVID happened. So bought the grapes in 17 or 18, partnership in 17, bought the grapes in 18, we're gonna put them out in 20. And we, were gonna, we had all these elaborate plans. I think we talked about it uh, with Angie and Lawrence PR. We talked about doing a, you know, a black tie affair, doing like an actual event, a, a formal dinner where we raise money for a certain um, causes that are near and dear to, to myself. And then COVID happened and we were like, well, what do we do with this wine? Like, how are we selling? And we took it to the bubble and the rest is history. But I, I think the, the partnership was organic. It was one in which it was flexibility where I could grow. I could grow in certain areas. I could learn certain things. Um, their, their ability and willingness to to show me things and teach me things. I thought that was really important because if there was no learning part of it, then I wouldn't have wanted to dive into it. Like, I like to learn things. And I don't think they, they understood, like, what I was going to do with what they were teaching me. <laughs> but, like, it was more train me, teach me, allow me to learn this space, and then I will create something that I feel is, is sustainable for my family and I that we can be a part of together collectively. And they've been terrific in the partnership and, and helping me continue to figure out ways to pivot um, in the event that I want to pivot and, and, and do more or grow more. So I'm thankful for them and their partnership, and that's why we're sitting here today, and that's why we have contracts for <laughs> who knows how many years I have to read it. <laughs> uh, talk about the name. So I was just going to name it Heritage. Um, I was trying to think of something that stood outside of my name, the family name us, like obviously the flower represented my wife, and I think she would understand that, and then as people dove into the story, they would understand that, which is wine is uh, about storytelling, it's about life, it's about sharing things and experiences and celebrations, and I think the cool part is each bottle, each label means something different, the description is different, and first thought to myself, I don't want this to be a part of C.J. McCollum, the basketball player, like this is separate, this is a separate entity, this is a separate part of my lifestyle. I don't want it. So I thought about what I would want to put on the bottle and what, what would look cool, like the font. I'm a big font guy. I love cursive. I love those types of things. I'm like, what would look cool if my bottle was just sitting there, right? Like, like what, what would stop, like somebody would stop and say, like, that's a dope bottle. Like, and I thought about, like, what was important to me, legacy, heritage, um, things that I want to leave behind. Um, I thought that was important to me. I grew up on Heritage Avenue, and it just made sense. So I was like, all right, Heritage. And then I was like, my wife and I were born in 91. Like, that would be cool, like, Heritage 91. So we tried to do it, and the process of 
getting things approved and getting patents and uh, is, does this exist? That was something I had no idea about, which is makes sense because I knew nothing about this space. They were like, nah, it's not gonna get approved. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, push it through anyway. So they tried to push it through and then we get the call back. This exists in this many places. You can't use the 91 because it's not a 91 varietal and there's all these red flags. And I'm like, okay, well, let's try it again. Let's, what do we add to it? And we called and they said, you need to add your last name for name recognition, right? Like you're entering a space that's new and you want people to know that it's yours. But also since Heritage on its own exists, you can put McCullum Heritage and then maybe we'll try to sign off on the 91, but you have to display the year of the wine and it needs to be easily uh, read. Like people need to be able to see like this is not a 91, this is Heritage 91, McCullum Heritage 91, 2000 whatever. So we figured that out, it got approved, and, and then the color scheme was tough, right? I was like, what kind of, what color bottle do I want? So I was like, let's start with dark features. So we went black label, um, we went black top, and the processing, getting things approved, like imagine like I'm playing games and I'm trying to get things processed and approved, so like I'm delayed on responses, and do I do custom corks? What do we put on the corks? And I'm like, I don't know. So we kind of went through that process, and um, having the right supporting system is, is essential for, for success. So I would say I had the right supporting system, and they were great. Ashley was great. Adelson was great on teaching us because we didn't know anything. And I told him I wanted it to feel like, you know, raised. I wanted it to be like a raised flower. You could feel it running across your finger. Um, and I was like, I want the flower, and my wife wants a purple flower. She has no idea I'm gonna do this, so we have to make sure that <laughs> we do a purple flower. Can we do a purple flower? <laughs> and we went through like all the colors of Ethereums, and I thought to myself, well, this is cool because I can have a different flower for each bottle because there's so many Ethereum flowers. And then my mind just started going like it does. And then I was like, what colors do I want with this? So I was like, all right, make it cursive, make the flower blend in, but like make sure it's raised, and then give me a pop color. And then we went to Jocelyn, and we went to our designers, and they began to design um, labels and that's how we got here and then the next one I was like I want a brighter color uh, for the rosé and then I would call Elise and say what color should we do the rosé she'd be like pink and I'd be like all right do you like the first one like raise or you want to do a different one she's like try something new so I was like all right let's go pink give me the same letters but change the McCullum to a dark font since we got already got the bright I want that to blend in and then we kind of did it like that and then when we went to Blanc de Blanc, which no one knows about, this will release around my birthday, we were like, yeah, we want a glossy color, but we want it to be a celebratory pop. And that's how we did that. And then the Shard was green because, you know, the Shard grapes, like the way it looks in the bottle is more light as opposed to the dark. So you have the, the light um, wine, so to speak, the dark bottle features. And then we we're like, yeah, the color green is just a really cool color that's going to come out around. Uh, Thanksgiving uh, for a celebratory, you know, holiday special, if you will. And that's how we got to these points. But I just basically take my ideas and then I ask Elise what she likes and then I just put them together <laughs> and hope that she likes it. <laughs> that's the truth. Tell me, tell me about the first bottle, about having, finally having a bottle of wine with your name on it in your hands. It was really weird, honestly. because just like all this work that you put in behind the scenes to learn about stuff, to grow. And you get this final product, and then the first thought is, wow, like, what if this doesn't taste how you thought it was gonna taste? And then, like, my name is on it. <laughs> and I'm just ruined forever because it's just a bad, just a bad year or a bad harvest or whatever the case may be. 
and when you're tasting it throughout the process, like we're tasting, like right now, we're tasting a single vineyard blend from Bryant Creek. This is like exceptional, and it's going in bottle in two weeks, and it'll age, and it'll be terrific. And now I understand the process. But imagine getting into the wine space, not understanding the process, and tasting it out the barrel four months after it was in the barrel, and you're like, "This is not what I thought. <laughs> this, is, this is not what I. This is what I picked. This isn't it. Like what happened?" And like just not knowing that process, like it was scary because like, it was just like, "What if this is a complete failure? I bought all these grapes." We want to put out this wine with our name on it. I got my wife's favorite flower on this wine. And what if it's just not it? Like, what if people just say, like, this is a joke? So that was what went through my mind as I'm holding the bottle. I was like, this could be a big mistake. But it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> you want Dwayne Wade laughing at you because you picked that wine. Yeah, not just him, but it's just like, you take things personally, right? When you personally invested, business is business. It's going to fail. It's going to succeed. But when you're personally invested in something, like you actually care about like the product, like the money is whatever. You care about the product. Like you want this to, you want people in this space to respect you because you took it seriously. Like I didn't just jump in and say, you know what, let's just make whatever you want. It's like, no, make it like this. And that's why I tell people it's based on our taste preference. Like, it's like, at least you like this. This is what I like. I wanted to have strawberries. I want raspberries. I want hints of lemon. It's not based on everybody's taste preference, so you're not going to have everybody a fan. But the quality should be there. The quality should speak to the to the wine, and that's a credit to Gina and the winemaking team. I just tell them what I like, and I say, "This is what we like. Can you make this?" And then they they do it. What'd you think of the first bottle, please? I thought it was delicious. It was incredible. I remember saying to CJ, "This is so good," and he said, "You sound surprised." <laughs> And I said, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not surprised because anything that CJ does, he does the full extent. And I had no doubt that it would be excellent, but I was like, oh my God, like this is really cool that like, like he said, he invested so much time and energy into this project. Um, it was just kind of a cool moment to see it all come, come through and to actually be tasting the wine finally, because it's years of work. Um, but I, it, was, it was really cool. To, uh, to share it together. Yeah, we did. We drank it. And yeah. I thought to myself, we should have bought more grapes. I, I know. That was, the, <laughs> that was the first thought. We should have bought it. I was like, yeah. Next time we'll buy more grapes. <laughs> you mentioned that, of course, it was released during 2020, which was a challenging year for, for all of us, uh, specifically so for, for people who are trying to play basketball professionally. So tell me about managing getting your wine out in the world and also uh, playing basketball in 2020. Yeah, that was a crazy year for a lot of people a lot of people went through you know unfortunate circumstances situations with job loss with deaths with uncertainty on work working situations and how to provide and what to do from a mental health standpoint so it was tough we all went through our own independent individual struggles but i think we just had to be creative right it's like first of all you're you're, you're bringing out you're putting out a luxury wine in the middle of a pandemic like this is a luxury, it's not like everybody doesn't have the means and the ability to, to take part in this. So it's like, you gotta make sure your price point is, is right. You gotta make sure your delivery is right. And if you say this is accessible for the masses, you have to make it accessible for the masses. So we had to think about what that looks like. And I gave away so much wine in the beginning, you know, similar to how most startup businesses are. Like you, <laughs> it's very hard to make profit when you're giving things away. But I gave it away because I wanted to get feedback. I wanted to get feedback from my peers, people who were involved in this space, so I could know if I was heading in the right direction or not. And because 
my peers are very blunt. <laughs> it was easy. It's like, yo, tell me if you like this. If you don't like, please tell me like strategic feedback on what you like about the bottle, what you like about the label, what you don't like. Um, would you pay X amount of dollars for this? Like, I wanted to go through that whole process with, you know, staff, teammates, people in the bubble. I gave it to NBA staff. I gave it to NBPA staff. We sent it to some of our friends and family. PR team sent it out to some people, and we just wanted honest feedback. So it was more like we'll give away wine on the front end to, to get feedback to figure out how we want to do it on the back end, but also to figure out if this is sustainable. Like, is this a sustainable business? Understanding that there could be another pandemic. Understanding that things could change in the world. Like, is this something you want to be a part of? Is this a business or is this a, a hobby in which you know you want to make wine and enjoy it with your family and I had to kind of decide like what is the end goal of this is this just a, a passion project or is this a real business because real business means you got to make real decisions so on that note with the with the wine that you enjoyed and the feedback you got you decided to keep going you decided to, to, to ramp up a little bit so tell me about year two yeah year two I mean yeah the years are blurred together. So we did an 18, <laughs> then we did a 19, um, and obviously, you know, we know what happened in 2020. A lot of people lost their grapes, and you know that's another story. But we began to, to work on other varietals. I began to taste through other varietals to kind of figure out, like, okay, what type of wine portfolio do we want to put together, and where do we go from here? Right? Like, is this something I'm just going to continue to do each year? Like, is it just Pinot? Is it Pinot Chard? Is it Pinot Rosé? And the second wine we did was a rosé. And we actually did a one barrel challenge um, as well, where we basically, you pick a, a grape or varietal, a bunch of wineries contribute. I think it was eight wineries and all the, the proceeds go to making wine more diverse, making this, the space more approachable. And we pick an organization, and last year was Maurice Lucas Foundation, where we partner with kids and kind of provide them with resources and things they wouldn't normally be exposed to. But when we did that, I began to taste Chardonnay. And I was like, should have bought more Chardonnay grapes. And we did a single single vineyard Chardonnay, and Adelson doesn't even make a single vineyard Chardonnay. So I asked Gina, I said, Gina, you guys didn't make any more? She said, no, 300 bottles. I said, that's the best Chardonnay I've ever tasted in my life. And I hadn't tasted many Chardonnays, but that tells you because I didn't like Chardonnay at all. Like, I despised it. I would do tastings and tell them, don't, don't bother bringing white wine over here unless it, unless it bubbles. <laughs> but we put a strategy together. We came out with a rosé and that's when Elise and I began to, to not just day drink, but also try other wines besides Pinot because we were in COVID and we would walk our dog every day and we'd be like, you want to try something new today? And we'd just try new blends, <laughs> new varietals. And I remember we did a virtual tasting with Gina where we had like all of these glasses out and we brought in the glasses, we numbered them and we made our, you know, rosé. We made the blend and we sent it in Gina. It was like, mix this one and this one. We want this clone and this clone. We want this much. I want the color to be like this. I want this much sugar. And we kind of went through it like that. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> what was your input, Elise? Um, for the rosé, um, when we were doing that, we, um, yeah, it was literally made in our dining room. We basically, like CJ said, we had all the glasses. And it was kind of interesting to see what it tasted like then versus the final product. Because CJ was kind of telling me, OK, we need to make sure um, that you know it has this sort of a taste because then down the road this is kind of what we're, we're going for as an end game um, so it was interesting just to see the process because I hadn't had a chance to kind of see CJ go through all the steps um, while he was doing his Pinot so it was it was fun to be included in it I appreciated it it's fun <laughs>
And we got the drink. Yeah, it was great. It's like, yo, you, got, you can't drink all of these in a row because we need to make sure we know what I know, I know. What, what, what was that one? Like we couldn't We couldn't risk that. Small sips. Yeah. So obviously, from the brand, you obviously made a significant investment in land in Oregon. So tell yeah. me about how that came about and what prompted you to make that step. The first time I stepped on the vineyard, um, Elise and I went, went to Stoller and we were just standing there and I was just looking out and I was like, this would be really cool to own something like this one day. And I was like, we're going to buy a vineyard. She's just looking at me and I'm like, yeah, we're going to buy a vineyard, we're going to build it out, it's going to be really cool and it's going to be inclusive and people are going to feel very comfortable. Like people that come from all walks of life are going to feel very comfortable being in this space and, and I think we're going to change the game. And she's just looking at me and I'm like, yeah. And then we go back to drinking and she's just like, he's drunk. He's, like, he's just out here drinking. And I think as I continued to, to become more of a, a member of this space, I started going to things, I started taking part in things. I began to speak to my mentors in the wine space. You know, I mentors everywhere at store. Uh, Lloyd Davis at uh, Corner 103. I began to call friends who, you know, are presidents of vineyards, CFOs, CEOs, winemakers, and say, hey, if you see anything that comes about, let me know. I'm just curious. I want to see the land process. I want to see the land acquisition process. I want to see what it's like. Um, and I just want to start sitting in on stuff. So I'm like, I just want to come check your space out. Like, how did you, how did you develop this? How did you develop that? Like, what does it look like? What's the timeline on the build outs? And as a guy who's in other businesses, I kind of understand construction and the costs and the prices and contracting and I was like do I want a space that's empty like blank canvas do I want to buy something that is already existing and I kind of like started thinking about that in 2018 and it kind of like Time kind of went on. I was like, we're not ready yet. We need to learn more about the space, learn more about the business. We need to figure out if we can actually sell like large quantities of wine. And I think we use um, the beginning as trial and error. Like, how much wine can we sell at once? You know, what type of grapes should we be selling? Do we focus on one thing? Is this boutique? Is this bigger? Is it global? Like, what is our end goal? And I think we're still kind of figuring that part out. But I just knew that you know the way the world was going as a person in real estate, land is important. There's only so much land available in this world, but there's only so many um, vineyards and, and, and places in which you can build vineyards on in this world, and the soil matters, and the water rights matters, and long story short, we found the right opportunity in the right, the right place and the right location, being from Oregon, basically having lived here for so long, I was like, this is, this is the one, so I, I took a lease. We actually had something fall through. We had another place that we liked a lot, and we were like at the finish line. <laughs> the day before our wedding. <laughs> she was pissed. I was like, uh, we're getting married tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah I looked at the place around the time we were getting married. We found it. And I was like, all right, this is the place we're going to buy. I've scoped it out, existing inventory. We can have, you know, brother, sister winery. Like it was adjacent properties. It was a gold mine. And I was like, this is what we're going to do. We looked at it. We finalized everything. I'm signing the papers and faxing them at the Wana Inn the day before our wedding. I give them to our wedding plan. I'm like, hey, like I signed these. Can you fax these for me? Like she's oh, distraught. Like you're doing this. I was like, this is this is our future. Like, but but we want the vineyard. I was like, do you want the vineyard or not? This is our future. Like this is our legacy play. And long story short, that falls through. And we find another one. So we go go through the process again. <laughs> seven months of vetting, seven months of accountants trying to convince me not to do it. And yeah. then um, I'm like, I'm doing it. Like, just tell me the numbers, tell me how we can make this work, and tell me who I need to surround ourselves with. And we ended up, we ended up purchasing 318 acres in Carlton. And the cool part about this property is that obviously it's, the soil profile is outstanding and water rights and 
can go on and on, natural aquifers on the property, and we had horses and all that stuff. But the cool part is that there's a nursery on the property. My wife loves plant, plants, plants and flowers and <laughs> things of that nature. An interesting combination. <laughs> yeah, so we'll be selling, we're selling Japanese maple leaves now. We'll sell hybrid Japanese maple leaves and we'll kind of round out the, the nursery vineyard project. And we actually plant it um, seven acres two months ago and then we'll plant 23 acres next year. And we're building out our master plan the next 90 days of when we'll start figuring out where we'll build structures at and how much of the 300 acres we want to plant out. Uh, we'll, we'll go through that process in the next 90 days and we'll probably begin construction in the next couple of years and you know depending on how construction goes we should have something done and we'll be able to transition our business and transition some of the things that we're doing to our own entity which is you know the end goal but I, I think we're in a good, good position a good place and it took a learning process and we're still learning and still figuring things out but the key is to surround yourself with the right people and, and have a plan and I think we've always done that and um, this is proof right like we you know, one two three was that four one two three we got four blends four varietals right here two of them are blends and then we got a fifth that we'll release that no one knows about and I don't know where we go from there that's five that we could consistently put out you got Gamay would be six you got Syrah would be seven varietals I mean, we could do a sparkling rosé, that would be eight. So, like, we'll have uh, a well-rounded uh, portfolio of whatever we want, which is wild to think about. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, you mentioned, obviously, a first site that you almost finished on in a second. Um, with the second site, the site that you finalized on, you mentioned there was obviously some natural, some things you liked about it. Um, what was the what was the kind of reality versus potential for you? What what existed there when you bought it, and what could you sort of see being there down the road? Yeah, I mean it was just farmland. There's a couple houses in the property, there's barns, there's a, a CPA office currently that that's being run on the property, but it was a blank canvas. And based on the conversations I had with our mentors, based on what Elise wanted, um, we could have bought an existing vineyard but it was like this is something that we can slow roll and build out to like our specific needs and wants and to our specific appetite where it's just like an artist getting a the blank canvas and you paint whatever you want if you paint wrong <laughs> you know there's issues so there, there's positives and negatives right because it's hard to build out a business but if you get to kind of predict your future if you will I like our chances and I think that we're in a position where we can build out exactly what we want and this gives us that opportunity to where the product is the product is there, right? Like we have the right type of soil, we have the right type of people we'll surround ourselves with, we have the right type of winemakers that we will acquire, hire, and consult with to make sure that we're picking the right clones, and we've done that up to this point. Now it's just about execution, it's about building out what we want, and obviously there'll be a vineyard, there'll be a tasting room, we'll probably do custom crush, so we'll be able to uh, make our own products, and we we're still talking through it, but I think for me, everything I've done, you know, has been more so about controlling the process. So I believe in vertical integration. I believe in if you're going to do something, you need to really do it. So I want to be able to do everything, distribute, make the wine, make other people's wine. Like I, that's, that's how I do things. That's how I vision what I'm doing for a living now as a basketball player. It's like, I don't just have to do stuff. So I think that's where we're at with it and we'll build it out the way we see fit and she'll have you know her input and what she would like to see happen from a design to a structure standpoint to what's on the property to what type of flowers that we plant here is there a walking trail there and and we'll do probably farm to table and we'll have like a whole operation and where 
we have to figure out we want weddings, how big are the weddings that we want to have on the property. We'll have to kind of go. Small intimate gatherings. Small intimate <laughs> gatherings. It's like, do we, you know, now we're going through the construction phase, right, where you, you got to basically divide your property up into fours or whatever the case may be. You can only build a certain amount of structures on each quadrant of the property. And if you, you can't really do a hotel because you don't get hotel permitting and it has to be a, Airbnb style chateau house under one roof and then there's more keys like the black one on end. So you have to figure out like you have this idea of what you want to do and then they tell you you can't do that. <laughs> so then you have to figure out how to like maneuver uh, permitting and laws because you, you know it's, it's a shame you buy a property and they tell you what you can do to it. It's amazing. It's crazy. <laughs> And Elise, I'm curious what you see as you look at the property. Um, so I see more of the landscaping and design and the garden, all of that. I plan to have something that's farm to table, um, some place where you can go and you have like a food and wine pairing, um, something that you can use as a space for an intimate gathering or a wedding. Um, I see it as a little park created that's very naturalistic, uh, that has native native plants to Oregon, Pacific Northwest, um, an area where you can grow dahlias um, and, you know, tons of flower growing. Anthuriums? Um, anthuriums, yeah. We'll try. That's not, not necessarily native. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, just different to grow different, um, different types of flowers, vegetation, I think would be really cool. Um, I have big plans for that. When it's up and running, I want to do like sunrise yoga. Like, yeah. But that's like down the road. Like, make this a wellness situation where yeah. I'm like on the top of the mountain. Like, tree pose. It's kind of like making the wine. You can see the end thing. You see yourself sitting and drinking it, but there's a lot you have to do first. Yes. Uh, so, uh, obviously, um, you're, you graduated away from Portland recently. Uh, you talked about, you mentioned you're moving uh, soon. Tell me about. Uh, feelings about that and about uh, kind of leaving Oregon as, as your as your place been for so long. Yeah, no, this was a situation in which it was time. It was time for a change for for both parties. We were ready um, to experience something new. We were thankful for the opportunities and the moments that this place gave us and what we were able to build here. We got married here. We, we gave birth to our first child here. We she gave birth <laughs> <laughs> to our first child here, and we're thankful and appreciative of the wine space, the fans, the business of basketball and what we're able to accomplish. And we, we've created a sustainable business that can survive everywhere. It's just about, you know, putting yourself um, in the right situations where you're surrounded by the right people. But I, I joke all the time. I say, you, you see McDonald's everywhere, right? But like, the person that started McDonald's isn't in every McDonald's. It's more about building a sustainable business. And I think we've done that. And this is a place we can always come back to and we'll always call home. We'll always be able to come out. And now we'll be here when it's the best time of the year. Yeah, <laughs> As opposed perfect. to going through the dooms and glooms of eight and a half. You know, this, this last year was nine, nine months and 25 days of rain. Uh, we'll be able to experience more of the sunshine. But I'm excited about going to New Orleans and transitioning. We're excited about the culture, the diversity, the food. We're excited to eventually have our wines at Mardi Gras and Essence Festival. and all the other summits that are taking place um, there, I think it'll be really cool and we'll still have this um, place that we can come back to, to share moments, to share memories. We'll eventually we'll be at Oregon Pino conferences and all those types of things, but right now our life doesn't allow that because of the businesses and um, working environments that we both have with a, with a kid. 
And Elise, tell me about your life right now. You mentioned you've been in school basically your whole life. Yeah. Now post-school. So what is your, what are your, what's your next step? So right now I work um, in an oral oncology and oral medicine clinic at Providence. Um, and it's a job that I absolutely love. It's a very, very unique setup where we're on the floor with um, the oncology unit and also with, um, with a bunch of oral surgeons that are treating patients. So it's a really unique setup where I can see these patients and take care of all of their needs um, prior to radiation or treatment, things like that. I see uh, patients that are going to have heart transplants. Um, I really enjoy treating this specific population and it's something I'm, I'm really going to miss once I do move to New Orleans, but I'm hopeful that um, either I can come back and forth every now and then to work here, or um, there's another cancer, a large cancer center in New Orleans where I'm hoping I can play some role. Um, maybe it's not providing the same kind of treatments I am here, but still working with the same patient population um, because it's, it's such a necessary area where it doesn't get enough light, and it's been, it's been really, really nice to work with. Um, with the dentists and everyone there. So I'll definitely miss it. <laughs> so you've talked both about kind of the future for, for the wine part of things and future for yourself. So I'm curious, as you look down the road, uh, you're just, just getting off the ground with wine. You've just, just got the new property and just sort of dreaming about what it will be. What do you kind of foresee the wine part of your lives being going forward? What, are, there, are there goals you have in mind? Uh, are there uh, sort of benchmarks you're looking for as you look ahead? I think we want to create a good product, a product that has a lasting reputation. We want to make sure we're treating the environment the way we are supposed to treat it. We want to make sure that we're a serious player in this space, someone that takes the space seriously but also does things the right way and also lends the olive branch the same way people lend the olive branch to me when I was trying to learn and, and get into this space. I think from a diversity standpoint, I said it before, as a black man, I want people to be able to see a black man in this space and be comfortable with that, especially you know people that come from places like me, but also people that don't come from places like me. They should be more comfortable with us operating and maneuvering this space. There's not a lot of women in this space, not, not just on the ownership level, but also you know all the way down to the person making the wine. We're fortunate to, to know Gina and to know Melissa Burr and so many other people who make wine. Um, but I think that will change with us being in this space. And I think as we continue to, to maneuver and move forward, um, the more diverse minds that are part of these types of things in general, but things in, in, in the world, the better product that you get. And I, I think that's the goal of being into, in this wine space. We want more people to, to join, we want more people to be a part of it, and we want more people to feel comfortable um, ordering wine off a menu. You know, we don't want that to be intimidating. Like it shouldn't be a whole thing where they got to come out with the white gloves on. And, like it should be comfortable. Like you should be okay with just ordering a rosé, buy the glass if that's what you want. You should be okay and comfortable with, you know, buying wine for your family. Like it shouldn't be something that feels untouchable. It shouldn't be something that feels, you know, outside of, you know, what you're accustomed to. And I think that's where this industry and this space is going in my in my mind. You think I did that? I don't know if I can top that. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Have you seen, uh, in the time you've been around wine, you mentioned diversity, you mentioned women, uh, all of the, the kind of the, the, the minorities within wine. Have you seen that changing at all? Slowly. I think more people are becoming more comfortable. Uh, I haven't been to food in Aspen. Uh, 
wine, food, food and wine aspect, the last two years, we've seen more diversity. We've seen more people, you know, from different backgrounds, um, different ethnic groups there present, showing and displaying their skills, their tools, what they have to offer to this space. I think um, there's still a long, long way to go. This is a, a realm that's dominated by white males. I think historically, it still is. But I think as more people become more comfortable in this space as we continue to figure out ways to provide more opportunities at all levels, not just at lower entry levels, but at leadership, real leadership positions. I think this will shift the culture of the wine space. And I think um, the same way I was, uh, you know, looking up to certain people in my neighborhood, like coming up, I want people to view this space the same way. Like, hey, if he can do X, Y, Z, then I should be able to have a chance to do X, Y, Z in this same space. Like, not just, you know, on the entry level, not just at the business level of purchasing things, but some people may want to just be winemakers. Some people may want to be in culinary side of the wine. Like food is very important in the wine space. There's a lot of things um, that make wine great, but food is definitely one of them. So I think there's a lot of cool factors that we will be able to display in this space and with our property and with the things that we're trying to build out with our property. I think that it will, it will bring out the best um, in not only ourselves, but in everyone else around us in our space. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, some, some of your kind of interests outside basketball wine, uh, volunteering uh, causes uh, that are close to you. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that are important to you outside of basketball and wine. You want to answer this one? I think you can go first. Um, I think historically I've focused on education, uh, being out here in Portland, being a journalism major, uh, minor in mass communication and sociology. I focus on people, I focus on relationships, and I focused on figuring out ways to help empower our youth, help empower. Uh, kids who come from disadvantaged situations and disadvantaged neighborhoods, and I think I focus on that with the Dream Centers and Press Pass and young mentorship programs that I have. I think there's a lot of food insecurities in the world, which we continue to try to address in different areas, different um, situations and circumstances. In past, obviously, COVID, you know, I was, you know, continuing to figure out ways to provide medical help resources, whether that's masks, whether that's lunch um, for for people on the front lines, like we've done various things of that nature. But I think going forward, it's just about continuing to figure out needs and addressing those needs based on location. And moving to New Orleans, it won't change. I've continued to give to here in Portland, especially for the Boys and Girls Club, not just financially, but physically being present when I can be. And I think that'll continue. And uh, we will now turn our focus to New Orleans, which has a different type of need, in a, um, especially around this time of year with hurricane season. There's going to be some issues in which we can kind of help to the best of our ability. Um, I think my, my general hobbies include gardening. Um, as I mentioned, I'm obsessed with flowers. And um, something that I really want to get involved with moving forward is in dentistry is providing um, care for children and providing education for children. I think um, there's a lot of um, uneducation that goes around and leads to problems down the road that could have easily been prevented. Um, so moving forward, especially in New Orleans, I'd love to do some different um, like fundraisers or just education sessions to help raise awareness for childhood cavities. Um, just from the, the moment a tooth comes in, what you can do to prevent oral health um, from getting out of line. I think that that would be a huge opportunity there um, to, to really make a change. And um, hopefully just getting involved with some of CJ's different um, outreach that he does, because I haven't had an opportunity until I really moved here and then it was COVID. Um, so just really getting more involved with outreach would be amazing.
And then I think another one of our, our hobbies is playing with our little rescue dog and also our son. <laughs> also our son. Also yes, our son. also, <laughs> who we spend 24 seven with. <laughs> Fiona watches him. Yeah, Fiona's watching him right now. <laughs> uh, kind of last question, uh, you talked about heritage and legacy and you talked about sort of the idea of, of people seeing you as something that they can it's something they can strive for. You came out of a tough place. You made it here. Um, so tell me about now that you're kind of uh, you've been in the basketball in the NBA for a while. You have a wine brand out. You're a pretty well-known public figure. Tell me about the idea of uh, how people view you and and having that kind of like the next generation looking up at you. You want me to say how people view me? <laughs> Not how they view you. But <laughs> it's just, like I don't just, know. Just the thought the thought of having people out there looking at you as a role model. Yeah, I think we have a responsibility. Um, Charles Barkley says the opposite, but I think we have a responsibility to try to do things the right way, right? Understanding that people are watching, kids are emulating your every move, and um, you have a, a pamphlet, if you will, for how to be successful. Right? Like they see your story, they can see where you came from, what school you went to, things that you're a part of, ways in which you've driven and made change, not only in your community, in your neighborhood, but also to this world. And I think for me personally, I've just tried to leave Earth better than it was when I found it and everything that I do. So whether that's kids camps, whether that's community work, whether that's playing basketball, whether that's a business I'm a part of, I try to positively impact people's lives to where when they walk away, they're like, yo, like he did what he said he was gonna do. He was honest, he was firm, he was confident, but I'm leaving this situation better than I was before I got into it. And I think that's what I've done historically. Some people may not like me or like the things that I do, but they understand that he's 100% himself, he's authentic, and um, he's going to do what he wants with reckless abandon, <laughs> which is true. Anything to add to that? He is 100% right, everything that he said. Um, yeah, I think that just watching him grow from this college graduate to where he is now, it's been incredible to see the transition. Um, but one thing that's really important to note, his character has always remained the same. Like, he's always 100% himself. He has literally not changed one bit, um, bit. except for all of all, his growth. Um, but as far as his character goes, I mean, it's unmatched. You can't beat it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you got that on tape. <laughs> so whenever anything goes wrong, we press play. His character is unmatched. <laughs> It's all the questions that I have for the two of you. But anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything you'd like to cover that we didn't cover here today? I don't have any. Thank you both so much for your time today. I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to share your stories with us, share your passions with us, and share your relationship with us. It's very, very great. And thank you to Alice for hosting us. As always, they're gracious and generous, and we appreciate that. So with that, we'll let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.